Would you stand to your feet with me to honor God's word? Our sermon text today is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. May your joy multiply in this place as you've done, as you've promised. Multiply your joy in your people, a conquering joy. Amen. Good morning again. Thanks for the good morning back. You can, this is, if you're visiting, this is a talkback church. That's okay. And uh, if you're also visiting, I want to say thank you, especially for that act of bravery. Uh, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs. We're in week three of our preaching series, the Apostles' Creed. Apostles' Creed. Last Wednesday marked 50 years since the tragic death of the great reverend, the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I remember reading for the first time and then hearing his iconic speech where he stood with the Million Man March and he proclaimed with boldness, he said this in the middle of that, he said, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. That we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. You see, in his wise estimation, our nation didn't need a new message or a new idea. We needed, and I will add, that we still need to live out our old message, our original creed. And church, how much more 
the church of the living God today. The church which is infinitely greater and farther lasting than this nation we live in, which will end. The church, for us to move forward, we need to go back. We need to live out the meaning of the creed that is a greater creed. We don't need a novel idea. New ideas are great, but more than anything, we need new obedience to the old creed. So as we've learned in recent weeks about the Apostles' Creed, as we've been studying, the early church spread extremely rapidly amidst intense persecution in the first several centuries of Christianity after the death, burial, and resurrection, verifiable resurrection of Jesus. Spread rapidly, and this was due largely in part to these creeds that were circulating even before Scripture was written down in the first few decades. And continued to articulate and defend Scripture even as Scripture was being organized and canonized. Because there was a miraculous continuity of message when we, we believe that our, our unity to this great message is greater than my individuality. Today, we need the same thing with the things we face. We need to be more dangerous with our continuity in the message that conquers everything. And so we're going back and we're applying the same power of continuity and articulation to our old creed with the faith that we'll be greater empowered to live it out. Amen? So last week, we talked about the first phrase of the Apostles' Creed, which is the earliest of uh, our heritage of creeds before the Nicene Creed, before the Chalcedonian Creed. And the first phrase of the Apostles' Creed is, I believe in the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. The creeds are not inspired scripture, but what we're doing is going through scripture to, to name these topics that the creeds mention, and we're teaching God's word as it relates to these things. So with the Father message last week, we went over 1 John chapter 3, the first part of it. And today, we're going to get to the next phrase in our creed. I'm going to ask you to read from the screen with me. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Well done. So I'm going to teach on this topic, on the incarnation of Christ. And I'll do so from our main text in Isaiah 9. If you're taking notes, the title of my message, my sermon, is The Christ Who Comes. The Christ Who Comes. Many of y'all have heard these words from Isaiah 9, preached from pulpits probably before. And I need to clarify that no, it is not Christmas time, even though... Uh, we're reading a verse that you might only feel at Christmas, but it, it was cold this morning, praise the Lord. I'm not confused about what season it is. Every season, though, is a season to celebrate that unto us, us, a child is born. That Christ comes to us. This is one of the greatest mysteries of our faith that separates our faith 
from everything else. Our God comes to us in the middle of our mess. All other religions and ideas have something to do with with man trying to aspire to get to God, to, to aim at perfection. And our faith is the only faith that tells of a God who got to us, a Christ who comes, who comes in the middle of our imperfection and our filth and our nastiness, the nastiness that we, we, we try to contain and stuff down and not really talk to other people. And we come to church and we're like, oh, it's all good, brother. And it's not good. And God knows that. And he comes to us. As I work through our text in Isaiah 9, I want to answer two main questions uh, that, that are answered as we work through the text, starting in verse 2. The two questions are, why did Christ come? Number two, what is Christ like? This Christ who comes, number one, why? And what is he like? That second question will just be a few minutes at the end. I'm going to take most of my time answering this first question. Because when we have context for why he comes, why we have a need for him to come, then what he is like will be received and enjoyed in a greater context. So this first question, why Did Christ come? Our text supplies two main answers to this question of why he comes. The first is at the start, and it's to deal with darkness. Christ comes to deal with darkness. I'm going to see from verse 2 this answer. I'm going to spend most of my time this morning in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This is a great gospel scandal. People in darkness receiving great light. Isaiah wrote this prophecy over seven centuries before the coming of Christ. Over seven centuries before the eternal son put on flesh. And as Augustine says, he added to his eternal divinity, humanity. He is 100% man and 100% God. Try to calculate that in your head. It's hard because it's bigger than you and bigger than me. Christ comes. Just a bit before in the passage, if you want a little bit more of a headache... Chapter 7, he says that there is a sign to God's people. Behold, the virgin shall give birth, the virgin shall give birth to a child and call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So wait, a virgin gives birth? Wait, and there's a baby and it's God? And then chapter 9, a child is born to us, a baby boy? Oh, he's also mighty God, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, everlasting father. This is not supposed to be easy to calculate and process. This is a mystery. It's always been a mystery. It was a mystery until Christ actually came. People couldn't explain his miracles, and even harder, they couldn't explain his person. This overwhelmingly attractive person of purity. 
And it still can't be explained. 2,000 years after his coming, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he is the Christ who comes. He is the perfect one. And it's still a mystery. And we have to, to ask this, this Christ, this Christ is the Greek word for the awaited one, the, the Messiah in the Hebrew language that would come to save his people. And we have to ask, again, save from what? And the answer given here, uh, gi- given in Matthew, it's to save his people from their sins. And to clarify here in, in Isaiah 9, light comes to shine on darkness. He saves us from our darkness, the darkness of our sin. Isaiah purposefully repeats here, in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And then he just goes deeper in to emphasize, no, seriously, the people who dwell in a land of deep darkness. See, he goes deeper with this mystery. On them, on you, on me, on wicked people, light has shone. This is a mystery. In fact, let's pick apart this word dwelling. Verse 2 goes to emphasize the people who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. We'll go to deep darkness in a second, but think about dwelling. It means to inhabit the darkness. You need to know that you don't just do sins sometimes. You and I grow up being indwelt by sin habitating sin. It's our habitat. Like fish has water, we have sin. We dwell in deep darkness. It's not just things that we do sometimes or other people, the bad people that we hang around every once in a while are back in college. Sin inhabits us. If you want further emphasis for this truth, have some kids, especially toddlers. Sin corrupts everything I do and think and say. As the late R.C. Sproul said, who died just last year, he said, we are radically corrupt. It goes down to everything we think and, and do. Even the seemingly good altruistic things that we do that we pat ourselves on the back for. Sin. Deep darkness that we dwell in. And you need to know that that's not how God created us. 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we've heard from the beginning, that God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. And he made us to enjoy himself, his light with us. It's a greater thrill than sin. Sin is the things we mess, just mess around with that don't satisfy. It's the mud. God made us to enjoy his light, the exhilaration of the adventure with him, the purity with him, the conquest with him, the radiance with him. He made us for that, and yet all of us reject his light. It's because of our sinful nature that we inherit from Adam and Eve, and my dad, and my mom. But we can't just blame it on dad and mom, because the darkness is something that I perpetuate by my own choices as well. We dwell in darkness. We reject God's light. Jesus says himself right after the famous John 3.16, 
John 3, 19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And if this isn't already hard enough to hear, this, we need to hear the hard part and it's gonna get harder. Consider the term deep darkness. They dwelt in deep darkness. The Hebrew word when it says deep darkness could be also rendered deep shadow. The King James says the shadow of death because the the literal word, most literal, is death shadow. Death shadow. Think about shadows for a second. Deep shadows. Maybe it's a dark day, faint light, and you're even under a deep shadow within that. You don't have much sight, but here's the problem with shadows we have just enough faint, corrupted sight that's imperfect to convince ourselves that we see. And this is a good picture of sin. Blind people don't tend to live under the illusion that they see. Think about that for a second. Blind people tend to know that they're blind. And so they don't rely on the illusion of sight, they tend to hear better. They tend to, to lean on others for guidance. Think about that as it applies to your life. I grew up in the death shadow of my own perversion and, and perpetuating it worse as I manipulated more people. As I got worse, I, could, I found worse people to compare myself to, to make myself feel better because it was a deeper death shadow. As I manipulated people and I, I, was, I was convincing myself all along, nonetheless, that I am, I am a real religious man. Like Nacho, I'd, I'd go to church just enough to make myself feel better for, for the, the, the things that I was incapable and unwilling to change. Death shadow. I was blind and convincing myself that I could see. Have you ever heard the song Amazing Grace? You know, John Newton wrote that with a revelation that he lived and grew in a death shadow. He knew he was a wretch. So you're never going to understand God's amazing grace. It'll never be amazing to you if you don't see from God's conviction that you're a wretch. And it's not me just saying mean things or the preachers, all the judgmental ones. No, if you don't understand your own sin, you won't treasure his grace as anything like it is, the amazingness. Now, John Newton said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. Do you know how it goes? I once was blind, but now I see. He wrote this with a purposeful irony. When he wrote this, most people think he had already lost his physical sight. And yet he's saying, now I see. And he's hearkening back to before when he had his physical sight, he was blind to the things of God. And he trafficked human beings as if they were cattle on his slave ships. He says, I was a wretch and I didn't see. I once was blind, but now I see. See, this this is the, the powerful irony that he lived in a death shadow. And on him? People who dwell in deep darkness, on them light shines. This is a gospel scandal. We dwell in deceptively blinding death shadows, and God shines on us. See, Isaiah had to be intensely feeling this. If you go back to verse 1, 
is talking about this land of darkness. It describes it more specifically. I'll just mention that. Ironically, it's actually talking, it says Galilee of the nations, speaking of where Jesus would grow up. This dark land away from God's promises, overlooked, insignificant, gloomy, dark. On them, light shines. We know from history, too, that part of their gloom came from bad government. Everyone say bad government. I'll be careful. But one uniting marker of our crazy polarizing political climate the last few years is that everyone's unhappy about something with the government. Everyone has some sort of gloom. And let me tell you, a little side note, this is a free bonus message. I don't care if you self-identify as a Republican, a Democrat, a Demublican. I don't care how you self-identify. If Jesus calls you my disciple, I hope you're praying more for the government than you're complaining about them. That's a little bonus. But let me just tell you, Isaiah had it worse than you and me. He had seen a decent king rise and die, Uzziah. And then he'd seen a younger king named Ahaz rise to the throne at the age of 20. Ahaz completely was a lot smarter than, those, than the older king, right? And so he wanted to make some changes. He turned the people away from the God of Israel, rejected God, rebelled against God, started sacrificing to the gods of the land. And you might say, oh, well, it's just a little different religion. He took his son and offered him to the God Molech in a fire. And as this little boy's body was being burned up, the cries of his anguish as he was dying were being drowned out by the beating ceremonious religious drums. We know from the rest of the Old Testament writings and the prophets that judged Israel at this time that this was kind of the epitome of Israel's evil. In fact, one prophet mentions that this act alone was one of the main reasons why God judged the nation of Israel and later sent them into exile. They did not have a value for their sons. And other people in the nation celebrated this. I hope you can have disgust for them, but disgust with caution. Because if we judge a different generation and we're not careful to examine our own death shadow, then we'll, we'll project what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. We live in a generation because of our own death shadow inflict all sorts of undue harm on millions of our children and all in the name of how great we are and how much we've grown and how less stupid we are than the other people before us. Why? Because of a death shadow. We dwell in deep darkness. And the Christ who comes comes to deal with a people content to dwell in deep darkness. If we understand why he comes, then what he's like is all the more amazing. On the people dwelling, just dwelling in this, John says this. He says, the word became flesh. Do you remember how it goes on? 
made his dwelling among us, those who are content to dwell in the death shadow. Made his dwelling among us. He deals with darkness, but part of dealing with darkness is also dealing with our oppressor. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now this is talking about Israel's existential enemies, maybe the, the Midianites from four generations prior to Isaiah, or Assyrians that were, that were going against Israel at the time. But it's also talking about the greatest enemy, the spiritual enemy. You and I face today. We face sin and we face Satan. Now remember our text from last week, 1 John talks about, when we were talking about the the message about the Father, it gives reasons later in the chapter about why the Son came. It says, verse 4, He appeared to take away our sin. And in Him there is no sin. See, He had the whole conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin thing going for Him. But he wanted to pass that to us. He wanted to deal with darkness by taking away our sin. And it goes on in 1 John 3 to clarify one of the things he does in taking away sin. And it's very clear, I think around verse 9. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the enemy. Now this is important for us to understand. When we're content to dwell in a death shadow... And the light shines on us. He doesn't just shine on me to forgive my sin, but also to eradicate sin little by little in my life. He's not just Savior, He's also Lord. He's Lord. Listen to this quote from John Piper. He's a preacher in Minnesota. He says, Jesus comes not only to forgive the consequences of sin, but also to destroy the corruption of sin. Don't use him as a sin forgiver, only to refuse him as a sin destroyer. He's a sin forgiver and a sin destroyer. If you accept him as a half savior, you'll never be whole. Why did Christ come? To deal with darkness But also, one last reason we see to bring us joy. Verse 3, you've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. Remember these people who are full of gloom. They rejoice before you as with joy in the harvest, as they're glad when they divide the spoil. See, there's these two metaphors. Like They understood the harvest metaphor, right? They understood the, the conquering a city and taking the spoils metaphor. And he says, your joy is greater than that. I think for us, it would be like when your favorite team scores a touchdown. I was a little bit convicted. We had a growth group party on Monday night, and we prayed together, but then we watched the Spurs game, and Manu Ginobili dunked, and I jumped up, and I was like, okay, Lord, do I jump like that in church? I hope so. But the joy that Jesus brings is greater than that. That's the joy of his light. I was 14 years old when... I was full of sin and manipulation when my friends dragged me half-willing to a Bible study and preached the word to me. One of the reasons why I love the Bible so much is because I'd been misdiagnosing my sin for years. And nothing like the Bible can cuttingly tell you what's wrong with you. And many of you all know, if there's an encouraging diagnosis that's misdiagnosed, it's the worst. 
And finally, I had this severity of God's word to tell me about my sin and how Jesus died for my sin. And he rose again from the dead so that I could have life. And I started to feel that life. And my old desires started to die away. That was 20 years ago, and they're still dying, still being killed in faith. And new desires started to rise up, this new unexplainable joy. And since then, I've been wanting to to fill others with joy. And I've been doing that for about two decades. I, 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 I encourage other people to be joyful. And some people I also annoy. There's a few reasons for this. Sometimes I annoy other people because my dad jokes just aren't that good. But uh, you're more likely to hit things when you swing, all right? But I also annoy some people because there's a brokenness in us that's taught us that the pain of our experiences has taught us that if someone is overly exuberant with me, there's an ulterior motive. There's something else there. And in my friendships over the last 20 years, to articulate my joy, sometimes I've had to, to take people aside and buy them lunch and, and, and say things like, listen, I know we're just getting to know each other and I need to be more sensitive to you. Maybe you're not kind of used to my very unique personality, admittedly. But if you only knew what God has forgiven me of, the words I've spoken, the darkness I've spread, the wretch that I've been, If you only knew, you'd understand why I cannot contain this joy. I cannot contain it. I can't help but talk loudly. You would understand. This great Savior comes to bring us joy. And today I fight for a joy. It's not like I don't have alternatives to joy every day. I don't get a pass from financial insecurity. I don't get a pass from fighting, you know, the difficulty of toddlers screaming everywhere and pooping everywhere. I don't get a pass from personal betrayals, but I have a choice every day. The reasons for me to be gloomy, the reasons for me to be joyful. And let me just do the math for you. I have no right to be anything but joyful. And people in my growth group can remind me of that during bedtime when I'm putting the kids down. He came to deal with darkness. He came to bring joy. That's why he came. That's what we believe. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son. He comes. He is the Christ who comes to deal with darkness and to bring joy. Now, the last thing is, what is he like? Check out verse 6. These superfluous, these like over-the-top names he's given. A son is born, and he is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. I'm just going to take these apart one at a time. Wonderful counselor. Uh, I've had the benefit over the years of good counselors, professional counselors, that have helped me get my mind right. And, and I'm going to have more of their benefit, I'm sure. I don't even know the problems I'm going to face with myself in the days to come, but the Lord's going to give me some more good counselors. But listen, I have one wonderful counselor that'll never be taken away from me. I remember the first time when I read the Gospels and I was just thinking, there's no one that can be like this. How does this person say and do these things like Jesus does? 
I can tell you all day, this isn't just a book, but until you get in this book and see for yourself the things that Jesus says and just spend time with him, you won't see it. The best thing that I can do in my pastoral counsel to you, beloved, is to refer you to a greater counselor. He is a wonderful counselor. I wish I could persuade you to read your Bible. I wish I could persuade you. And I would do everything I could. If you have to take your rectangle and throw it as far as you can into the woods and go with your Bible and spend time with Jesus, I'm telling you, fight for your life. He is a wonderful counselor. I can't, I can't even... It's overwhelming to me how good he is. You've heard the phrase, too good to be true. He is too good to not be true. No human being has the intellectual faculties to fabricate a person this good. But are you spending time with his goodness and his wonderful counsel? You need it. You need it. He is a wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. Remember, this mighty God is this child that was born. He's a child who is mighty God. And let's think about the implications of his might. Verse 5, armies will be rendered useless before the advance of his weaponless troops. Now, technically useless, because it says their uniforms will have some use to be burned up by his coming glory to light up even brighter, which is already infinitely bright, his light. He will stop troops with his might. Verse 6, the government shall be upon his shoulders. The Hebrew word used for government is the word misra, which literally means just, just rule or dominion, and it's purposefully general. Because whatever nations rise and whatever nations fall, Every rule, every dominion will bow before his might that will never end. In fact, verse 7 says there will be no end to his government. No end. Trusting in this is why I can live under any sort of government. Honor, respect them, pray for them, bless them, ask God to give them wisdom, thank God for them, because I have a greater God whose peace will continue to dominate me and you and us and his rule will never end. He is a mighty God. He is so mighty that I'm challenging you to make a habit of doing things and saying things to people that, that can give one of two outcomes. You can lay hands on a neighbor and one outcome is you look like a fool. The other outcome is that you show and display the matchless power of a mighty God. Let me tell you, to get outcome two, you have to be often willing to get outcome one. But knowing that we serve a mighty God, I can pray for the sick. I can pray for the dead. I can prophesy over my neighbors. Why? Because he is a mighty God. He is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, everlasting father. Now, I need to clarify that when it says his name will be everlasting father, it's not that his essence is father. It would be heresy to say that, that Jesus is the father. No, the triune God is three distinct people. But Jesus seamlessly represents the father. He's the one who said, if you see me, you see the father. 
He's a perfect representation of the Father. He is named Everlasting Father. Now, I hope that I can be a good father to my four kids. But not everlastingly. (laughs) Especially at bedtime. Again, that's the second time I've confessed my sin there. But it's not everlasting. But Jesus will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He's everlasting. He's the Prince of Peace. Justice and righteousness, verse 7 says. We know that that's the foundation of his throne. Of the increase of his peace, even, there will be no end. Let me tell you a promise that you can take home to the bank. You can leave here, and your stresses in life will not go away. You're like, why would I want this promise? But listen, you can have a peace that totally eats your stresses for lunch. Because the Prince of Peace, when he lives inside of you, it doesn't matter what things are on the outside of you, you're more dangerous to the darkness because of the light of his peace inside you. St. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself. Our hearts, our hearts will not find rest until they rest in you. The last thing I want to say before we go to confession and communion the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That is a sure promise. And how? Let's remember the irony of this. This prophecy is spoken to a people whose king is King Ahaz, who's sacrificing his sons to a false god. And they said that this darkness, this utter darkness of Israel, will be remedied by the light of God. And how will it be manifest? A son. A son is given. Your darkness is manifest because your mistreatment of your sons. And so I'm going to give you the son. I wonder if this stung to Ahaz and people who followed him. And it didn't just stop there. Because we know that the son was also sacrificed. But he was willingly sacrificed. And Jesus wasn't sacrificed to a false god, but to the one true God. And he became the perfect, final, atoning sacrifice for all of our sin. So that when we go to confession and we go to receive him, we can have assurance of the forgiveness of our sins. There is no one like Jesus. We can receive this in faith. We can receive this in faith. Would you stand to your feet with me? As we're gathering our kids for confession and communion, I want to pray for you. Jesus, I thank you for the goodness of your word that we can see, that we can savor. There's people here today, Lord, that, that need to respond in faith. Maybe for the first time, saying, Jesus, forgive my sin. I believe that you died for me and that you're alive. And that faith is the, is the expression of new life. And there's people who need to follow up with that, with confessing sin and receiving from you at the table. There's others who need to follow through with the sacrament of baptism and join little Joey in the waters. Lord, I pray that you would make clear even now, Holy Spirit, who is supposed to get in the water today and obey you in baptism. I pray that you'd make it clear right now.
Lord, I pray that we would see your light. We wouldn't just shun the darkness and complain about the darkness, but that we would burn brightly with your light and enjoy your peace and your joy in a conquering way. Amen.